good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Let's turn together tonight once more to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5, I want to uh, read halfway down through the chapter, uh, read some verses following the cleansing of Naaman. And then verse 15, 2 Kings 5, verse 15, uh, the Word of God says, And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him and said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. But he said, As the Lord liveth before, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. In this thing, the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leaneth upon my hand, and I buy myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow down myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. And he said unto him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a little way. The main lesson that I think we should always keep in mind when we study the, uh, the experience of Naaman here in his healing from leprosy is that what we have here is more than an account of the healing of a leper. This, I believe, firmly is the record of the conversion of a sinner. In Luke chapter 4, in the verse number 27, Christ uses the record of Naaman to show the sovereign grace of God. He is to the Savior an illustration of how God chooses to save one. While the multitudes of the Israelites turned their back on God and followed, followed Baal. Hence, Naaman is a lesson in the sovereignty of God in salvation. We see in Naaman's case, God's sovereignty in selection. Why did God choose Naaman? Simply because he chose to choose Naaman. We see the sovereignty of God in his strength. There is no reason for Naaman to believe what he believes, to do what he does, except for the part of God. And we saw even before that God is sovereign even over the circumstances that led to Naaman's encounter with the man of God and, of course, with the God of Elisha. And so, under God's sovereign guidance and by God's sovereign grace, we come to note then the humbling and the healing of Naaman. Naaman's experience here is an act of humbling. He's humbled under the power of God. He has to reckon with his need. He has to receive the word of a servant. He has to review his notion of God and religion. He has to reject his national cultural pride. He had to realize that he couldn't earn his healing. He couldn't earn his salvation. And those are all marks of God's work in Naaman's life. And so by faith, he believes the promise. By faith, he obeys the command. And thus we see a great picture of well, just the nature of God's work of salvation and grace alone. 
faith alone, ultimately pointing forward to the truth that salvation is in Christ alone. But the sequel to the cleansing is in itself, I believe, full of evidence regarding the change in Naaman's heart. Verse 15 through 19 are, I believe, a testimony. A testimony of what God has done in his heart. Hence, I do believe firmly that this account is the account of the conversion of a sinner. And when we look at this evidence, I want to begin with that thought, the thought of conversion here. You need to be very close-minded to not see that Naaman is a changed man in verse 15. There are difficulties in these verses, and there are some who, for whatever reason or other, refuse to see any good in Naaman's heart at this time. I think it is always wise to think the best of people, unless there's evidence that demands the contrary view. But more than that, we have, I believe, clear evidence that Elisha himself sees good in Naaman. You have those words, go in peace, in verse number 19. You see, the rebirth that we see taught in John chapter 3, whereby a sinner can see and enter the kingdom of God, that rebirth is not only a New Testament phenomena, it is something that was also true in the Old When someone was saved in the Old Testament, they also were born again. The only reason they came to trust the true and living God was because God had done a work in their hearts. And those who are born again, they become new creations, new creatures in Christ Jesus. And so the change we see in Naaman is a change from pride to humility. That's what I think we see in these verses Just look at the end of verse 15. I pray thee, as Naaman addresses Elisha, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. Gone is the rage and the anger. Now is a man who comes to Elisha and refers to himself as a servant of a humble Israelite prophet. From a presumptuous demanding spirits to posture of submission. There is no rebirth without there being humility to follow. The very essence of becoming a Christian is to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. The very essence of what it is to trust in the Savior is to realize that we cannot save ourselves, that God is God and we are his sinful creatures. And thus there is no true Christian without there being some degree of humility. There will be submission to the will and the authority of Christ. And as we often see here, Elisha points forward to Christ and the child of God will always say to Christ, I am thy servant. I confess that you're my master, I'm your servant, and what you bid I will do. That's the posture here that Naaman exemplifies for us. But the humility that is also, is also seen, sorry, in the gratitude that he has. He offers the gift. Just to be clear, Elisha refuses the gift, but he does not rebuke the offer. Some people say that here's an example where Naaman is trying to buy and earn the favor of God. 
He hasn't learned the lesson. Now, that's just not being fair to the testimony here. There is no rebuke from Elisha to the offer of the gift. And we know from other times, Elisha other times does receive gifts from those who are blessed of God. So what's happening here, I believe, is that Elisha is refusing the gift to ensure that at no time Nim would think that he's earned the enjoyment that he's received. I think that is indeed part of Elisha's heart here. But at no point do we see Elisha rebuking Naaman and saying to Naaman, you can't buy your salvation. And I don't believe that is Naaman's heart at this time. He's already enjoyed the blessing. He's not trying to pay Elisha back. I think what you see here is a heart of gratitude. The saved man desires to support the Lord's work. Gratitude is found within the heart of the child of God. The proud man thinks he owes nothing to anybody. The proud man thinks he deserves and has earned all that he has. The proud man thinks there is no need to be thankful. But the humble child of God earnestly desires out of gratitude to support the work of God. The saved soul knows they deserve nothing. Knows they earned nothing, knows they were given everything, and from such a reality they are thankful. And then there is that desire to express that gratitude in tangible ways. We had the occasion on uh, Friday evening passed again as a church committee to review the uh, financial records as we approach the end of the year. And I must confess, I have been amazed once more at the generosity of the giving of God's people. Do I presume, therefore, you think you're earning your salvation? Do I think in some way you're, you're trying to, to pay back God for his mercy towards you? You can't pay back God for the mercy shown you. You could never give enough to pay God back. And so I presume that the case is that out of gratitude you believe it is right and proper to support the Lord's work. Now, now, what I'd never want you to think is that you would imagine yourself as giving your tithes in on the Lord's Day as if you're paying membership to some social club. You don't pay your dues when you come to the church. There are annual membership fees for all manner of clubs. You don't pay annual membership fees in the church. But the child of God, humbled because of the grace of God, in turn shows gratitude and desires to support the work of God. That's what God does in the heart of those who are converted from pride to humility. You think of the lady we studied in Luke chapter 7. She loves much. All her sins, which are many, are forgiven, and she loves much. There's an interesting verse in Galatians chapter 4. I came across again today. Galatians 4 and the verse 15. Where then is the blessedness you speak of? For I bear you record. Here is Paul addressing the Galatian believers. If it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Such was the spirit of the child of God. They would do anything for the promotion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Out of love for Christ, they had a love for the Lord's work. And I think that's the spirit that Naaman has towards Elisha. Take a blessing off thy servant. And so you see in the conversion here, you see the change from pride to humility. In the second place, you see there is a confession. There's a confession. You see that in verse number 15. Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. 
And then down in the verse 17, My servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. Monotheism, and the belief that there is one God is good, but it's not enough. And the devils believe in God and tremble. We must identify who the one God is. Having a belief in a God, a single God, is not is not ultimately true saving faith. And what you have in verse 15 is a, an open confession from Naaman that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. And the sacrifice in verse 17 is unto the Lord, capitalized Lord, unto Jehovah, the God of Israel. And in the cultural setting there, it was expected that people would believe that one area had their God, another area had their God. And so, yes, there may be the God of Israel, but there was also the God of Syria or other places. Naaman saying, no, there is only one true God, and that true God is Jehovah. This is a tremendous confession of faith. He's been turned from idols, in the language of 1 Thessalonians, to serve the one living and true God. That is what salvation is all about. Just as salvation is being humbled before God, so also salvation is leaving aside all other false gods. And this confession is, I believe, remarkable for a number of reasons. It is a disinterested confession. There's nothing to be gained here. He's getting nothing back. You know, sometimes people can confess allegiance to the true God because they expect something in return. I remember I mentioned before, I worked for a couple of months in a hospital outside Nairobi, and the hospital required that the staff members were all Christians. There is something to gain from confessing Jesus to be Lord. You get something back, you get a job. And so it certainly caused some challenges and problems in ascertaining what a true Christian was. But here, Naaman's getting nothing back. He's already been healed. There is no reward for this confession. He simply says, I know there is no God. What's more, this is a free confession. It's not even asked for. It's not coerced. There is no arm up his back. He simply gives the confession. It's spontaneous. And in verse number, verse number 15, it is clear that it's a public confession. He and all his company, and before that company, he says, I know there is no God in all the earth. There is a reason whereby Romans chapter 10, in defining what it is to be saved, makes it clear that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, thou shalt be saved. Those who believe that Jesus is Lord are happy and proud to tell anybody that Jesus is Lord. There is no holding that back, though they get nothing back in return. Even at times, though it's not even asked for, they are willing to say that Jesus is Lord. Those who profess to be saved but refuse to make a public confession must ask themselves, do they actually believe do they believe that Jesus is Lord? In our neighborhoods, in our communities, are we known as those who are the lovers of Jesus? There is the public testimony of the baptism, going through the wars of baptism, saying, I follow Jesus. 
I am his disciple, that's part of it. But there is the ongoing profession and the ongoing confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the third place, the third evidence, is the evidence of commitment. Verse 17, And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. Here we see Naaman's commitment to worship the one true and living God. Those who are saved worship God. The Father seeketh such to worship him, John chapter 4. Those who worship in spirit and truth, the very nature of salvation, humility, confession, and a continuation of public and private worship. Now those who have a bad spirit towards Naaman, again are quick to accuse him in light of this verse. And they say he hasn't moved on from his pagan superstitions. He wants this soil to go with him out of some superstitious reason. reason. I don't believe that's the case. He certainly made the confession. We've seen the confession. There is no God in all the earth but in Israel. He's made the confession that he's not going to offer burnt offering to anybody else or to other gods but the Lord. So what's in view here in this Bur or this uh, two mules burden of earth. It's not a small amount of earth, by the way, but what's in view here? Well, I wonder, and there are others who suggest this, that in Exodus chapter 20, as the Lord is instructing the, uh, the Israelites prior to the tabernacle, the Lord says to him, An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shall sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings, and thy peace offerings, thy sheep, and thine oxen, in all places where I accord my name, I will come unto thee and I will bless thee. And it was the practice to offer the sacrifice upon an altar of earth. And so I wonder, and I believe what's happening here is that Naaman is requesting earth to build an altar for private worship. He's going to leave Israel. He goes back to his homeland. But he is determined to continue worshipping the one true and living God. And what I think we see here is a desire to identify himself with the people and with the land of God. Remember how important the land was at that time? The land promises, the earth. Again, the land is received because of the blessing of God through sacrifice. And so there's this altar of earth, and now we find Naaman, he's saying, I want earth because I want to continue to worship the one true and living God. Now some of this I accept is implication and supposition, but I believe it has some degree of weight. Clearly, looking at the entirety of the testimony, Naaman is determined to worship the one true and living God. He's determined to flee idolatry. And so the connection here seems to be that he wants this earth to build an altar to sacrifice unto God. It's an expression of his heart. It's not suggesting there's a command that we should start gathering mules, burdens of earth. But at the same point, we must be careful not to judge Naaman harshly here. The altar, of course, is to worship God upon the ground of sacrifice. It's implied here in verse 17 that he is going to worship God upon the ground of sacrifice. 
It would seem to me that he's come to believe not only in the identity of the true and living God, but also in the way to approach the true and living God, that it is only through sacrifice. Of course, we as saved souls recognize that not only do we worship God in church, but we also worship God in our homes. As Hebrews 13 says, we have an altar. Are we worshippers of God? Day by day, publicly and privately, are we determined to come to God through Christ each and every day? In our homes, in our closets, in our church, is there that regularity of worship that is consistent with those who claim to be born again of the Spirit of God? Did you worship today? Oh, I prayed. And, and yeah, prayer is part of worship. But was your prayer a list of petitions? Or did you pray to God in the sense of worshiping and adoring his name? All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. Are those expressions of our hearts that come from those who've been born again in the Spirit of God? Naaman, I believe, has that heart. And so you see conversion, you see confession, you see commitment, and finally, you see the presence of a conscience. Now, I believe some might title this last point, compromise. Is it conscience or is it compromise? He gives reference to the house of Rimmon. Verse 18. In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leaneth upon my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. The house of Rimmon, of course, refers to the worship of a pagan god. Clearly a violation of the first three commandments. It's a violation of what it is to worship the one true and living God, worshiping a false God. And so some argue that Naaman here is the, the first preacher of compromise. And Elisha's response in verse 19, go in peace, is neither for nor against, it's simply a cold formality. Another explanation is that Naaman is asking for pardon for past sins. But that doesn't seem to go very well with the idea of when I buy. It's a future tense view. So what's going on here? Well, he's not going to worship Rimmon himself. He's made that clear in verse 15 and verse 17. He is not going to worship Rimmon. He is committed to the worship of one true and living God. What's also the case is that I believe he receives the blessing of the prophet. And he said unto him, Go in peace. Now, this is more than cold formality. You think of the heretics in 2 John and how we are forbidden to greet that heretic and say, Godspeed. Elisha is not being casual with his words. He is God's anointed prophet, and he says to the man, Go in peace. And he means what he says. So, what's happening? Well, it seems to be that in Naaman's duty, he is going to be involved in practices that will not involve his personal involvement, that he's discharging a civic duty. Now, the application of this is incredibly difficult 
But it would seem to me that there is permission given to him to discharge that duty without him compromising his allegiance to the true and living God. And the application must be very careful. John Calvin wrote a famous work against the Nicodemites, as they were called. The Nicodemites is a term in the Reformation for those who, like Nicodemus of old, came to Jesus by night. They continued to attend the Roman Catholic Mass while alleging to profess faith in the one true God, namely Christ. And Calvin rebuked them, and he uses in part this example, and he says, do not use Naaman as an excuse for personal sin. And that's the danger here. You begin to see this, and people very quickly say, but what about Naaman? And they're guilty of compromise and confusion. They're guilty of denying the Lord. And they'll use Naaman as an excuse. Don't do that. Whatever it means, it is not an excuse for personal sin. But in the same sense, let's be careful about judging others who may, for whatever reason, find themselves in difficult situations in different cultures and different contexts. Edersheim says this, We cannot be too strict as regards our own conduct, not yet too charitable, consistent with truth, in interpreting the motives and actions of others. Can't be too strict about yourselves, nor yet too charitable regarding others. So I think the main issue here is that Naaman is a converted man with a conscience. That's what I think we see here. He's come to realize that to profess faith in the true and living God brings him into conflict with the place he's going to and the role that God has given him in providence. And so let me close by asking you, do you have a conscience before God? Are you careful? Paul would speak in Acts 24, and herein do you exercise myself to have a conscience void of offense toward God and towards man. A clear conscience. Elsewhere, Paul would say, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of a faith unfeigned. Conscience is a mark of conversion. We wonder, we question, if I act this way, is it honorable before God and man? And at times, we come back and we say, did I do the right thing? Was I right there? Was I wrong there? It's a matter of a conscience given by God, informed by the Word of God, but quickened by the work of the Spirit in our souls. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170. That's 610-993-3170. Or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.